Welcome to the Ranting Rhino podcast. I'm Tim Carson, and this podcast series is from our latest men's conference at Newest Community Church, where I'm the Associate Pastor of Discipleship. We are a Baptist church committed to a Reformed theology, expositional preaching, intentionally intercultural, and hold a high view of God and the scriptures. If you want to know more about New West Community Church, you can find us at newwestcommunitychurch.com. The men's conference theme was Man's Quest for Meaning, and this episode is a recording of the fifth session entitled Man's Quest for Righteousness by Pastor Darcy Van Horn. I would like to ask you to stand as we read scripture. I would like to read Philippians chapter 3 and the first verse of chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to that. Uh, And let's read together God's word. The Apostle Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I account everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. And join me. Let's ask God to speak to us through his word this morning. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would now give us 
ears to hear and hearts to respond with faith and love and obedience. I pray that you would give me your unction that people might hear you speaking through your servant. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was given the task by Pastor Tim to talk about the quest for righteousness as part of the larger theme of man's quest for meaning. And so as I thought about, well, how do I relate those two, this passage came to mind. One of the greatest needs in human life is a sense of direction and purpose. Without a sense of purpose in life, we are no more than a bunch of corks bobbing randomly and aimlessly in an endless endless ocean, tossed to and fro by the wind and the waves with no shore in sight and no reason to keep going. Thankfully, all who have committed their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, both for the present and for eternity, have received a God-given purpose that does provide direction and meaning in life. The key for each of us is knowing God's purpose for our lives and embracing it for ourselves. However, that doesn't come automatically, doesn't come easily. We live in a fallen world and we are constantly bombarded by the fiery darts of the evil one who would seek to deceive and discourage and possibly destroy us. The devil tries incessantly to convince us that life is ultimately meaningless so that he can get us to give up. We can be thankful that all who truly know Christ will be safely brought to his heavenly kingdom. But that doesn't mean that the path is smooth and the journey is easy. Our Lord Jesus described it as a small gate and as traversing a narrow way and as a call to take up our cross daily and follow him. And so the Christian life is a battle. It's a spiritual battle. And because it's a battle, it is crucial not only that we come to understand that a truly meaningful life is found only in Christ, but that we also recognize that there are various elements that make up a life of meaning. We've heard about some of them, the quest for a legacy and the quest for joy and the quest for adventure and the quest for relationships. All of those are part of a, meaning, a meaningful and purposeful life. This morning, I'd like to consider with you one other component, I believe an essential component of a meaningful life, one that we must learn to fulfill. We all need to discover how to meet our inner need for righteousness, which really is a sense of being right, being in the right, not being in the wrong. We all have a self-identity, a sense of who we are, and a need to be vindicated in that identity. And so the big goal is to live a meaningful life to the glory of God during our short, short time on earth. But we must not fail to recognize that meaning in life will continue to elude us if we don't also fulfill the quest for righteousness, a quest for vindication in our identity as being right, as being what we should be. And so as we consider the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, we will see that he connects the pursuit of righteousness with the discovery of a life-transforming purpose that truly gives our lives meaning. And so his words give us a principle to live by that can be expressed something like this. The quest for righteousness that, an essential, that is an essential component of a meaningful life 
can only be fulfilled by a faith in Christ that passionately pursues God's upward call every day. And so we think about life, we think about meaning, we think about our relationship with God, and he calls us to trust Christ and pursue him passionately to bring to fulfillment all of these things. So I'd like to just try and unpack those together with you for a few moments this morning. Uh, four principles that we draw from this passage. I'm going to spend most of my time with you today on verses 7 through 16, but we will draw from the entire chapter uh, briefly. And so the first principle is really just setting the scene. And it is this, the quest for meaning that drives all men always includes a need to be righteous and recognized as such. We look at the beginning of the chapter, and of course everybody jokes about Paul saying, finally, and he's only halfway through the epistle. I will try not to do that halfway through my sermon. Um, but finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So he's trying to focus them on God right from the beginning, but he's really writing to deal with some false teachers. So he says in verse 2, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. He's talking about the Judaizers, those who would require Christians, Gentile Christians, to be circumcised. In other words, to become Jews before they can become Christians, before they can know that they have eternal life. And he says, for in fact, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So the quest for meaning that drives all men always includes a need to be righteous and recognized as such. Paul begins his third chapter of Philippians by urging his brothers to rejoice in the Lord. And that's one of the key themes of the letter. And then he goes directly into warning against these false teachers who are threatening the well-being of the church. We're all no doubt aware of the importance of contending for the true faith in regard to the Christian life. But... I don't want to focus so much on the error, but on why Paul and these people were in conflict with one another. As I mentioned, the Judaizers were people who boasted in physical circumcision. To them, it was a mark of their identity as God's people. And they wanted all Gentile Christians to submit to it that they might boast in the success of their proselytization. Look at all the people that we've brought into the faith by means of circumcision. And in a very real sense, the more Gentiles who submitted to this Jewish rite, the greater the vindication of the group identity and of the rightness of these people whom Paul considers enemies of the gospel. In other words, a vindication of their righteousness, of their being pleasing to God. Now we know from Paul's writings, both here and elsewhere, and indeed the entire New Testament, that circumcision was no longer a mark of belonging to God's people, of being right with God, but the desire to be right or to be righteous, which just means being right according to a standard, that desire is normal and good. It is natural to all people. It isn't possible to have a meaningful life without a sense that one is right, that one is righteous by a standard that one values. Both Judaizers and Christians desire to be righteous. Judaizers, Judaizers boast in circumcision. Verse 2, Paul says that Christians boast in Christ Jesus in verse 3. And at the end of the chapter, as we look at verse 19, he talks about these unbelievers and unbelievers generally who worship their belly, their appetites, 
and they glory in their shame. Now, this means that what they boast in is ultimately shameful, not that they delight in being ashamed. Rather, they delight in being righteous, but the things they delight in are shameful. They glory in earthly things upon which they've set their minds, as he says at the end of the chapter. Again, by contrast, as we look at those last paragraphs, we Christians boast in our heavenly citizenship, and especially the Savior who made us citizens of his kingdom. But no matter what we boast in, no matter what we think righteousness consists of, no matter how we try to live our lives rightly, all men need and desire to be righteous and to think of themselves as righteous or right according to a standard and to be regarded as righteous by others. We don't like to be thought of as losers, as those who've chosen the wrong path, who do the wrong things. We like to think that we are noble and worthy to be admired. We like to think that we are right and righteous. Of course, it's critically important that we have the right standard. And ultimately, it matters not whether we ourselves or other people think we're righteous. Our eternal destiny depends on whether we are right in God's sight, according to his standards. But we need to recognize the principle that life loses meaning if we don't believe we are in the right, on the right side, holding the right views. And so the quest for meaning always includes a quest for righteousness. But how we pursue righteousness is critically important. And that brings me to our second principle, and we will draw from verses 3 to 7 here. And that is there is a folly that is a danger to us. The folly of pursuing self-righteousness is that it ultimately loses everything. So Paul has warned about the Judaizers, and they boast in their flesh and the things they've done and the religiosity. But he says, we Christians are the circumcision. We are the true circumcision. We who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. But then Paul seeks to undermine them by talking about if confidence in the flesh, the things you do are what count for righteousness, he could outdo them all. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But there's a folly to resting in and pursuing self-righteousness. As we will see, it means you ultimately lose everything. So Paul at one time, like the Judaizers, made his own righteousness the measure of his own identity. And that's what we're all tempted to do. And even as Christians, we can fall back into that. So here he lists his great qualifications as a zealous Jew, showing that if the Judaizers boasting in their accomplishments and their religious pedigree were the measure of true righteousness before God, then he, Paul, could match them stride for stride. In fact, he tells us he could surpass them. He has four inherited privileges. He was circumcised on the eighth day according to the letter of the law. He was a member of God's people, the people of Israel. But not only that, he was a member of the tribe of Benjamin, which was the tribe from whom the first king was chosen, Saul, 
after whom Paul was likely named, because as you know from the book of Acts, he was called Saul, and then later it notes that he was also called Paul, which was his Greek name. He also describes himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews, likely referring to the purity of his ancestral line. And then he goes on to boast in three personal achievements on top of those inherited privileges. As to the law, he's a Pharisee, which was the strictest and most zealous sect in Judaism. You know, you might say, well, as to the, as to Christianity, I'm a, I'm a conservative Baptist. Well, some of you might identify with that. Some of you might not. But that's what Paul is really saying here. And then he says, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. In other words, he had convictions about the truth of his faith and the error of these Christians, and he acted on those convictions. And then as to righteousness under the law from an external perspective, as other people saw him, he was blameless. His, his obedience to the letter of the law was beyond reproach. And yet, Paul concludes after recounting his Jewish pedigree in verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. The implication is clear if we think about it. All the things that he valued, all the things he put his trust in and his confidence in, his Jewish heritage, his religious accomplishments, were of no value in gaining Christ. And so he gladly renounced his confidence in all of them in order to gain Christ. In fact, unless he stopped trusting in his own righteousness, and this is true for every one of us here, Christ was out of his reach. And we can only conclude from this, as we think about the quest for righteousness, that putting our confidence in the flesh in our own self-righteousness, in our own accomplishments, whatever the standard by which we measure ourselves, whether you choose the right football team, whether you have the right nationality or speak the right language, or have the right haircut, the right education, it doesn't matter. Some of the things make sense, some of them are foolish, but people have their own standards. But whatever the standard by which we measure ourselves, if we're putting our trust in our own accomplishments, our own righteousness, we gain nothing of ultimate value, and especially we fail to gain God's approval and His acceptance. So the folly of pursuing self-righteousness is that it ultimately loses everything. Why is this important to us? Because it's a temptation and will be until the day we see Jesus. We're all tempted, are we not, to do what the Judaizers did. We do so out of this deep inner drive for a meaningful life. But it does not succeed. And so Paul would contrast that self-righteousness, that confidence in the flesh that he was once driven by, that the Judaizers are driven by, that all people are tempted to be driven by, that if you're not a believer in Jesus, you are still driven by. He contrasts that with the true source of righteousness, and that's our third principle in verses 7 through 11, which is that the reward of resting in the imputed righteousness of Christ is that it gains Christ forever. Let's just read verses 7 through 11. 
He has just listed all of these things. And then he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. It's a very strong word there. It can be translated dung. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the ultimate goal, the resurrection from the dead." Verses 7 and 8 are the swing verses in this section that runs from the beginning of the chapter to verse 11. Not only do they express Paul's utter loss of confidence in his own efforts to please God, they also express his new source of confidence and hope before God, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. Having met Christ on the Damascus Road, having truly understood who he is and what he had done for Paul, had transformed this self-righteous religious zealot into a humble man who now delighted to magnify the glory of another rather than himself. And so we see, as we look at Paul's example and his teaching here, that a Christian is a person who has begun, first of all, to understand the magnitude of the love and the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ demonstrated at the cross. The Apostle John tells us that we love because he first loved us. And so we are people who have seen ourselves from God's perspective. And the picture isn't pretty, but we've also seen the love of God in Christ Jesus, a love that sent the very Son of God into the world to die on a Roman cross to take the punishment that we deserve. And he did so after having lived a life of perfect trust and obedience to his Father. So a Christian is one who who has come to understand the love of God for him. But a Christian is also a person who has discovered that his quest for righteousness is truly satisfied and can only be satisfied by the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to his account or reckoned to his account or credited to his account. Uh, We don't use the word imputed very often, except when we're talking about this. I I don't think I've used the word imputed in the last uh, month otherwise, but it means to, to credit or to reckon or to account to someone's count. It's, it's a, it's a financial term. And that's the righteousness that we count on because it's been accounted or reckoned to us. Verse nine tells us that Righteousness from God, which means a right standing with him, is his gift to us. It's a gift that is entirely by his mercy and grace through Jesus Christ. It's not something we earn. It's not something we can ever deserve. But we can simply receive it by turning from ourselves, turning from our sin, and turning to Christ, putting our trust in him alone, putting all our weight on him. And as a result, his righteousness is reckoned to us and we receive God's unconditional adoption as sons and daughters. So Paul goes on to explain that when he received this righteousness that comes not from keeping the law, not from doing religious things, not from anything in himself, 
He goes on to explain that it comes through faith in Christ. He calls it the righteousness that depends on faith. That as a result of that, he now has a new standing and a new status. And he describes it as being found in Christ. That's his new identity. That's his hope. He is now in Christ. And in fact, if you, if you look through Paul's writings... I'm not sure he ever uses the word Christian. I know Luke uses it in Acts when he talks about Christians or, or, or disciples who are first called Christians in Antioch. Um, I think Peter uses it. I'm not sure. I think there's one other designation. I'm not sure if it's Paul or not. But Paul's favorite designation for Christian is the term in Christ, which points to our union with Christ through faith. But he also reminds us that Christ is in him. He's in us. What Paul describes in Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so we, when we've understood this amazing love, we can't help but treasure Christ and trust him as our only righteousness before God. And that is so important for a meaningful life, that we know we are right in God's sight. And so we have a purpose for life because, first of all, we're reconciled to our Creator and we can live for Him knowing that we're accepted by Him. And of course, if we know what He's done for us to make us acceptable to Him, we can't help but value knowing Him above everything else in this world. That's what a genuine Christian is. Is that you today? Does knowing Jesus Christ mean more to you? than building a big bank account or a successful career or having a, a great family or a nice home or a fast car or maybe a slow car that looks good, uh, whatever your thing is with cars. Uh, I know I have to watch the speed of my car, even though it doesn't look great. It's just a family sedan, but it still goes fast. But really, a Christian is somebody whose who's passion is for God. It's for Christ. It's to know him. You can You can hear that in Paul's words here. Verse 10, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection. But we must also note that obtaining this gift of Christ's righteousness and thus fulfilling our heart's quest to be right and righteous can only come when we count all our own righteousness as complete loss. And that's a challenge. That's hard. That's putting to death the self. Paul says in 7 and 8 again, whatever gain I had, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He went on to say, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Do we see knowing Jesus of the greatest worth of anything available to us in life? And Paul could put, put feet on his words. He said, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Pastor Paul read uh, the passage in 2 Corinthians 11 where Paul recounts his adventure or another way of looking at it, the cost he paid for following Christ because he valued Christ. He valued knowing him. He valued making him known because he yearned for Christ to be glorified and people to be reconciled to God through him, that Jesus might look upon his sacrifice and, and be satisfied with the travail of his soul, as Isaiah 53 tells us. 
So the quest for righteousness that drives every man is only fulfilled in those who absolutely come to the end of themselves, who follow the way of the cross. See, a meaningful life is not a life of power and success and being the alpha male who does everything. Yes, there's a sense of adventure. But that sense of adventure goes down before it goes up. It follows the way of the cross, the Calvary Road, which always leads down into the valley of self-denial and death. Death to one's ambitions and lofty desires for personal glory. Death to one's own righteousness, so that there might be life to ambition for Christ's glory. And so what is the result of Paul's new attitude toward his inherited privileges and his personal accomplishments, which he listed earlier in the chapter, his new attitude toward his repudiation of all self-righteousness and attempts at personal glory? He doesn't deny that his privileges and accomplishments exist. He's not trying to pretend things are different than they are, but he no longer values them As his righteousness, his rightness, his right standing, his reputation, his vindication will no longer be found or achieved by anything he has done or anything he is in himself. Jesus Christ alone is Paul's righteousness, his vindication, his new identity. And the result of that is that Paul gains Christ. He gains him forever what he calls the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And as a result, he describes his new ambition in life as a man whose righteousness is Jesus Christ. We read in verses 10 and 11, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Whatever the cost, it doesn't matter as long as I end up in the presence of Jesus and in the meantime live for his glory. And so the reward of resting on the imputed righteousness of Christ is that it gains Christ forever. And therefore it is the fulfillment of that quest for righteousness, for rightness, for vindication that leads to a truly meaningful life. Surely it would be wise for each one of us to look within to ask ourselves where our righteousness is found today, would it not? And so then that leads us to our fourth and final principle, which is really the outflow of finding your righteousness in Christ. As we look at verses 12 to 16, which in some ways is the heart of this chapter, Paul says, a passionate pursuit of Christ is God's calling on the lives of all, every one of us who've been clothed in Christ's righteousness. A passionate pursuit of Christ is God's calling on our lives. Verses 12 through 16, we read, as he talks about all the things he wants to to do and be, to know Christ in the power of his resurrection and to attain to the resurrection from the dead by any means, it's all about being in Christ and loving him. And yet he says, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but... I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. One thing I do. 
Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Then he exhorts others, because Paul was always the teacher and the model and the example who, who had a pastoral heart and was burdened that others would also experience the joy of knowing Christ. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. In other words, don't go backwards, keep moving forward. Perhaps we could say that the objective doctrinal heart of the passage that we've been looking at this morning is the paragraph we concluded in verses 7 through 11, where Paul talks about Christ being his righteousness. But the passionate and practical heart, as opposed to the objective doctrinal heart, the passionate and practical heart of this text is found in verses 12 to 16. Here the apostle reveals the effect on his passion and purpose as a new man in Christ. And he also answers the important question, how do you and I know that we've received this imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ? How do we know that we are found in him? So in these verses, Paul describes the passion that grips the heart of those who know Christ as their righteousness. And he, he also reveals a strategy that lives out this passion and that results in a truly meaningful life. And it's so important that we live meaningful lives because the world is struggling along in the darkness with lives that are empty and futile. And as they see us following Christ and having meaning in life in spite of the ups and downs and the challenges, they're drawn to know why. They're drawn to ask about the hope that is in us. They're drawn to come to Christ. And so for the glory of God, as well as for our own well-being, we need meaningful lives. And righteousness is an essential component to that. And as we experience the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, a passion flows out of that, which is evidence that we have experienced that righteousness. So Paul describes his passion, and he describes a strategy to live out this passion. And so firstly, our strategy begins by recognizing our present status. We haven't arrived yet. We're not there yet. Whether you've been a believer for 10 minutes or 100 years, we haven't arrived yet. Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, he says in verse 12. Verse 13, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. In other words, the things for which Christ has laid hold of Paul are still a work in progress. They are still coming into fruition and into being in his life. Like all of us, Paul had to live in the tension between the already and the not yet. And thus the essence of our strategy to live out the reality that we've come to know Christ, both as our righteousness and as our treasure, what Paul sums up as he writes to this church in verse 1 of chapter 4 as standing firm in the Lord. That's what it means to live out your life as a Christian. That's what it means to know Christ as your righteousness and as your treasure. He sums that up in many ways, but perhaps one of the best is the simple truth that we are people who delight ourselves in the Lord. We love Jesus Christ. We delight in him. We treasure him. And as a result, we are people who pursue him passionately. 
It's not just words. Jesus is precious to us. And so we pursue him. But before that happens, Paul makes it clear, we must be humble people who recognize our need to pursue him, a need that flows out of the reality that we haven't arrived yet. We must understand that when Paul counts all his self-righteousness as loss for the sake of knowing Christ, uh, we don't want to make a mistake here. Paul is not telling us that we should be indifferent about how we live or what we accomplish in life. He's not canceling out what Pastor Paul said about the great adventure or what Pastor Tim said about leaving a legacy or what our brother Andrew said about uh, building relationships to the glory of God or about pursuing joy, as Pastor Gary said. Those are all important. But how do we view those things? We shouldn't be indifferent to how we live or what we accomplish. We are now God's people. It is our greatest privilege to serve him and to live for his glory. And this will include, one hopes, many good and noteworthy accomplishments in the cause of Christ and God's kingdom, leaving a legacy, living an adventure for the glory of God, building relationships, living the joy of knowing Christ, that others might want to know him as well. You're all familiar, I'm sure, with the words of John Piper, and I'll probably misquote them, but God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. As we have joy in him, that reveals to the world that he is worthy, that he satisfies our souls. But as we live that out, we have to guard against putting our trust in what we do while not being indifferent to what we do, but always keeping our focus on Christ. We must never allow ourselves to revert to trusting in our accomplishments, or we will have gone back to the dead-end attitude that Paul and all of us had to be rescued from in the first place. So Paul makes it clear that the first step in meaningful living, or living rather, a meaningful life to the glory of God, is recognizing that we haven't arrived yet. There should be a humility amongst those who know Christ when we see how great he is and how we really are not worthy of being praised. Rather, he should be praised. We think of the words of the Lord Jesus when his disciples, as he talked about forgiving those who sin against you seven times, which was huge. Peter had, had said, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? Up to, up to three times? which Or I think maybe Peter said seven, because the, the expected amount was three, and he doubled it and added one. But uh, Jesus said, when you've done all that you were commanded, because they said, Lord, increase our faith so that we can live this way and do these kinds of things and forgive people even when they're unforgivable. And Jesus says, when you've done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. There's nothing we do that puts God in our debt so that he answers our prayers and treats us like we're great servants. If we lived perfect lives, we would only be at zero. We would only be doing our duty. And the reality is we're all in the negative. But Jesus' point is, I'm gracious. Your heavenly Father is gracious. Don't put your trust in yourselves. You're unworthy servants. How do I strengthen your faith? By getting you to keep your eyes on the fact that I am gracious. So we begin by recognizing that we are not there yet. 
But our strategy in living for his glory also flows out of what we desire. Paul describes it in verse 14 as the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. God has called us heavenward, but the upward call of God has a prize that motivates us. The question is, what is the prize? And simply put, it's Jesus himself. What else could there be that would be greater than him? The prize of the upward call is Christ Jesus. The call we have is in Christ Jesus. In other words, we have this call because we are united to him by faith. But there's nothing and no one greater than Jesus to whom we can be called. There's no greater prize than Jesus Christ. Thus, knowing Christ is everything to the believer who has been counted as righteous for Christ's sake. And that's exactly what Paul expressed earlier in verses 7 and 8, which we've already read a couple of times. Thus, the quest for righteousness and the quest for meaning are only fulfilled in knowing the Son of God, which means that treasuring and pursuing Him must be our first priority in life. So our strategy, thirdly, is to pursue him with passion because he is such a great treasure to us. Just listen to Paul's heart here. I press on to make it my own, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal. Can't you just feel the heat of his burning heart to know Christ? There's no inconsistency in this man's heart. He's single-minded in wanting to know Christ better. We think of the words that were again mentioned earlier, where Paul wrote, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. He talks about the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. But practically speaking, how can we develop that kind of God-pleasing, Christ-honoring passion that gives meaning to life? And the answer is by focusing on and continuing to focus on the gospel truths of what he has done for us in our desperate state, the righteousness he's imputed to us, how he loves us, what he has in store for us for all eternity. I don't know if it's a function of getting older or a function of the world getting worse, but I find myself thinking about eternity and glory more now than I think I ever have. And I can honestly say that I'm, I'm beginning to yearn to go there. And I'm thinking of my brothers and sisters that I know. We just had a dear brother at Renfrew go into the presence of the Lord this past summer. And, and in some ways, I'm starting to envy these people. And there should be that kind of holy envy on all of our parts. And of course, when you're younger, you think you've got your whole life ahead of you. And, and rightly so, you want to live for the glory of God. But you know, there are going to be some generation that are really young when Jesus comes back. And it's not that their lives will mean less than somebody that's lived 80 or 90 years walking with the Lord. The issue is, do we love his appearing? As the apostle says in 1 Timothy. So we, we, we preach the gospel to ourselves. We rekindle over and over again our love for him, knowing how much he loved us, what he's done for us, what he's given us, what lays in store for us. And then we begin experiencing him in his word and prayer as we meditate on his word, as we seek him in prayer, and we begin the adventure of walking with him day by day so that we come to know him and enjoy him more and more and more. It's a lifelong pursuit. 
In addition, our pursuit of Christ is the only thing that can overcome the influence of our past. We're constantly tempted to discouragement as we think about our past. But Paul says, forgetting what lies behind. Now, that may be the good things or the bad things. Uh, Rudyard Kipling said that success and failure are both imposters. Why is that? Well, past successes tend to fill us with pride and self-reliance on our own so-called righteousness, which is just the thing Paul talks about being delivered from. Past failures, our own failures, or the hurtful actions of others toward us, they often fill us with regret or with remorse or despair or resentment or bitterness. They express our lack of righteousness in the past. Our past successes might cement our belief in our righteousness. In either case, our righteousness is what's in the focus, and that just leads us away from God, and it discourages us. The only thing that can overcome the influence of the past is a passion for Christ in the present. Only this can enable us to believe that he is of greater value than any success we've ever had and of greater worth than anything we've ever lost through our failures. And then we also recognize that Paul would teach us that our pursuit of Christ is fueled by our hope for the future. Talks about the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. At the end of the chapter, he talks about our citizenship being in heaven and we are awaiting a Savior who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. I don't think we can ever think too much about the Lord's return, the consummation of the age, and what it will mean for us. Do you think about those things? I sometimes wonder what it's going to be like when he calls us to himself in the air. Like, will we go up slowly or quickly? Will we see people we recognize? Ever since I was a little kid, I wanted to fly. I wonder if that will be sort of fulfillment of that wish. I don't know. But do we think about that? Do we long for that? One day we'll be home. We're not there yet, but when we get there, we'll experience the joy of new bodies, no more sorrow or pain or tears, no more curse, no more death. That's part of why we pursue Christ, and that's part of why we love him, because that's what he's promised us. And then our pursuit of Christ also becomes a growing experience of his fellowship right now in the present. Paul says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Ultimately, we pursue Christ not because of our choice of him, but because of his prior choice of us. A choice that cannot be undone, that can never be thwarted, can never fail. He will never change his mind. He's made us his own, and now our calling is simply to respond to the one who loves us and complete the one who will complete the work he's begun in us. If you think about it, it doesn't get any better than that. So I close with this thought. The desire to know Christ does not make us perfect or mature. It is only the beginning of the journey. It must be accomplished by a disciplined pursuit of Christ, a daily pressing on toward the goal. There's no room for complacency nor for passivity. There's no place for pride or despair. Rather, there is all the reason in the world for hope, for joy, for forgetting what lies behind all the reason in the world to focus on the future and especially to enjoy his fellowship in the here and now. But it all begins when we experience the Lord Jesus 
as the fulfillment of our quest for righteousness and as the real key to a life of meaning and purpose. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The quest for righteousness that is an essential component of a meaningful life can only be fulfilled by a faith in Christ that passionately pursues God's upward call every day for the rest of our lives. Is that your passion today? May God make it so for all of us that he might be pleased to use us as part of what he's doing to once again turn this world upside down. Amen.